0: There they go. That's a big kid right there. <laughs> so, are you all here again? What's up with that? Gee. It was two nights before Christmas when Elizabeth Morris received a phone call from the local hospital informing her that her son had been involved in a car accident and that she and her husband, Ted, were urged to come immediately to the hospital. Arriving at the hospital shortly after that, they discovered that their son had already passed away, was gone, the victim of a drunk driver. It was the next day at the police station that they learned the identity of the man responsible for their son's death. Elizabeth Morris recounts how she began to feel anger, bitterness, resentment. She stood in her son's bedroom thinking about how unfair it was that her son was gone. And through our legal system, the man who had killed her son was walking around still carrying his driver's license. At the preliminary hearing in the courtroom... She saw for the first time the face of the man who'd killed her son. And that anger, that resentment, that bitterness grew and multiplied. And she discovered in that moment that as a Christian, learned to value love, she felt a very intense hatred for perhaps one of the very first times in her life. Court dates got postponed over and over again. The man who'd killed her son continued to walk free. She found herself thinking, if I see him walking across the street, I'm going to run him over. Maybe you understand that. I certainly do. She felt convicted about what she was feeling toward this man. She prayed and asked God to help her. She remembered verses of Scripture that maybe would come to your mind in the midst of this story. A verse that says something about forgiving 70 times 7. Love your enemies If you forgive those who trespass against you, I'll forgive you your trespass. These verses all kind of flooded into her mind. The final court date came. The man who killed her son was given three years of probation. She was irate. Anger, bitterness just continued to, to multiply. She would call the police station to make sure that the guy was doing his community service. She would actually drive by his house hoping to catch him doing something that violated his parole. Her whole entire life was dominated by all the emotions around that event. And I would suggest to you this morning that the words of Elizabeth Morris, that the word forgiveness is one of the hardest words in the English language for us, even as Christians. And I don't know this morning if you would agree with Elizabeth. Um, Well, we're not here. There we are. Um, But she experienced what we often experience in what I like to call kind of the downward process of bitterness in our lives. Elizabeth experienced the offense that happened that followed a sense of uh, resentment. That, of course, grew into hatred. She began to carry this grudge that lasted for a period of time. And her story is filled even with the desire for revenge. If I see him walking across the street, I want to run him down. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I have. I understand this fully. The inability to forgive others destroys marriages. Destroys friendships, destroys families, causes missionaries to be ineffective on the mission field, and it destroys churches. It's a very real need in my life, and I suspect in your life as well. Um, Elizabeth said that forgiveness was the hardest word. Would you agree that the hardest thing God asks us to do as Christians is to forgive others? There's probably some other hard stuff that God asks us to do, right? But that's a tough one. I wonder if you agree with this statement this morning, that the failure to forgive literally will haunt you throughout your lifetime. The failure to forgive leads to bitterness, conflict, and loss on multiple levels. And I want to tell you a story this morning that happened in the book of Second Samuel. We all know the story of King David, the greatest king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. But there's some dark spots in David's life, right? And if you turn with me this morning to Second Samuel, I want you to see an event in the life of King David. And I want you to meet a man by the name of Ahithophel. Can you all say that with me? Uh, Hithophel. it's a name that hopefully will stick in your memory for quite a while. It's impacted my thoughts, impacted my thoughts greatly. As you come to the book of 2 Samuel, if you were to open your Bible this morning to 2 Samuel, and if you were to drop in at chapter 11, you'll find kind of the background of this story that I want to tell you. Um, in chapter 11 is that classic... Sad, sad story in David's life. The event of lust, adultery with the woman by the name of Bathsheba. This introduces the whole process into David's reign as king. In chapter 12, you're familiar with the story, right, where God sends the prophet Nathan to David to confront him about his sin. And the prophet Nathan comes and tells David this story about two guys that had sheep. Well, the one family had a young lamb. The other rich rancher had hundreds, perhaps thousands of sheep. And really, this one little lamb that the one family had was more like a family pet. This rich rancher was entertaining guests for dinner and needed meat for the supper table. Guess where he found the lamb to butcher for his supper table? He stole the lamb from the family that had one. Nathan tells this story to David, and David is enraged. And he pronounces that the the person who did that ought to die. And then if you remember the story, Nathan, I can see it in my mind's eye, Nathan points his finger in David and says the immortal words, what are they? You are the man. Or if you're a King James person still, thou art the man, right? And so Nathan comes to David, confronts him with his sin. David repents, responds in a very positive way. But Nathan tells David, you're going to experience some pretty extreme consequences because of your sin. The child that's born to Bathsheba dies. Nathan tells him that bloodshed is going to follow his reign. There's going to be all this conflict. And it happens starting in the next chapter, because in chapter 13, what happens? Do you know the story, if you've read this, David's oldest son, Amnon, in a long story that I'm going to shorten down with a simple sentence, rapes his half-sister. Now, Tamar has a brother named Absalom. And so now Absalom decides he wants to avenge his uh, sister. And so he kills Amnon and as a consequence, flees And is sent into exile. Kind of the side story is David is ticked off. He's angry at what Amnon has done. But David does what? Nothing. And so Absalom takes things into his own hands, has Amnon killed, and he flees for his life. Long story short, after a period of time, um, Absalom comes back. And now we're finally at chapter 15. That's where I want you to come this morning as we read God's word together. Because Absalom now has come back. Oh, by the way, when Absalom killed Amnon, he not only avenged his sister's rape, he also now has placed himself at the top of the pecking order to be in line for the throne because Amnon was the firstborn oldest son of David and would have been the next king. Guess who's in line now? And so Absalom plans this conspiracy, this rebellion. And it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see Your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, that every man who has any suit or cause could come to me and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before Absalom, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, it came about at the end of 40 years, probably textually. There's a question about the difference between 40 years and four years. It's not a big deal to spend a lot of time with, but a period of time has gone by. And Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. About 19 miles southeast of Jerusalem is the city of Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living at Gishur in Aram, saying, If the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet... Then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for, notice the next word, here's our star player in this drama, Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from the city of Gillow while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, and the people increased continually with Absalom. So Absalom stages this revolt, gets all these people together to come on his side and follow him and challenge David for the throne. Then a messenger came to David, saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him, but the king left ten concubines to keep the house. So Absalom stages this revolt. News comes to David of what's happening. What's David do? Takes off. So he gathers his family. He gathers the servants in the household, those supporters of his, and they're taken off out of town to avoid the conflict. And the key phrase in here that captures my interest and always has is this statement in verse 12, Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite. And the next two words say what? David's counselor. And so I want you to think with me a little bit about this man Ahithophel. Um, <sighs> first of all, who is this guy? Um, it's kind of comical, actually. Anyone ever name your son Ahithophel, by the way? It's a great name. It means foolish brother. So here's a man with the name that means foolish brother. And he is the most trusted confidant of King David. The Scripture tells us that when Ahithophel spoke, David understood it to be a word directly from God. When Ahithophel gave advice, it was direct from God. That's how how his wisdom was, was counted. Ahithophel and David were like this. Close, confident counselor. In fact, Ahithophel had a son named Eliam, who was one of David's trusted, valiant men. Inner circle. These guys were tight. David and Ahithophel. And yet, when Absalom launches his rebellion, he calls for Ahithophel. And I read that and I'm kind of surprised. Why would this guy betray David, abandon David, go after the opposition, if you will? Anyone else besides me ever been betrayed by somebody you really trusted a lot? You know, I I can identify with this story a lot. So Ahithophel follows Absalom, deserts his friend David. And he gives advice. And what happens is, David is fleeing out of town. Guys are following him. People are flocking to him. And Ahithophel is going the other way to follow Absalom. And so David hears about Ahithophel being now on Absalom's side. And as a part of his strategy, David sends another of his trusted men, Hushai back to Jerusalem, to be kind of a double agent, to go back and pretend to be with Absalom, to go back and pretend he's on Absalom's side, and hopefully to give Absalom advice that is beneficial to David. That's David's plan. And so David has fled, Absalom has come, and now it's time for Ahithophel to give his advice. And so in chapter 16, if we jump in at verse 20, you may want to just read all of this this afternoon or tomorrow to kind of put all the pieces together. Because I'm kind of racing through all this and leaving big holes. In verse 20 of chapter 16, Absalom said to Hithophel, give your advice. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. Remember, he left ten behind. Go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. You see, the harem of the king was one of the marks of his kingship. And his heir who would follow him or a conquering king that would come would automatically inherit the harem. And so Ahithophel says, put up a big tent on top of the palace and in front of the eyes of everybody in the kingdom that can see, go into those concubines, engage with them sexually, taking your claim of the throne. The Living Bible has a phrase in here where they take a little liberty, but express the idea that saying that this was an irretrievable, irrevocable violation that's Ahithophel's advice. Then Ahithophel goes on. It says in verse 22, they pitched the tent, Absalom went in. The advice of Ahithophel, verse 23, which he gave in those days, was if one inquired of the word of God. I already told you about that. Furthermore, now we're to the, now we're to the meat of the issue in chapter 17. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrifying, so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone. I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people will be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Is that a good plan? That was a fabulous plan. But in the providence of God, Hushai was there, another counselor. Let's hear what he has to say. So Absalom says, now, verse 5, call Hushai the archite. Let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken spoken thus. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai hears the plan of Ahithophel, and what's his first response to that internally? Oh, no. And so Hushai has a plan B. And he begins with this sentence. Remember, the, uh, the wisdom and advice of, his, of Ahithophel was like who was speaking? And so Hushai's first sentence is this. This time, I'm in verse 7 if I lost you, I'm sorry. This time, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, you know, your father and his men, they are mighty men. They are fierce like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Your father is an expert in warfare, will not spend the night with the people. He's not that dumb. Behold, he's now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. And it'll be when 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 he falls on them, Ahithophel falls on them at the first attack, that whoever hears it will say there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. But I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, north to south, the whole country, as the sand that is by the sea in abundance, and that you personally go into battle. So we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found, We will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, not even one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city. will drag it into the valley. Not even a small stone will be found there. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Read this next sentence. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. So here's two plans. What's the difference between Hushai's plan and Ahithophel's plan? It's all in the pronouns. Everyone knows what a pronoun is, right? It's all in the pronouns. When Ahithophel gives his advice to Absalom, The primary pronoun is the word, I. I will choose 12,000 men. I will hunt David down. I will thrust him through with a spear. I will bring them back to you. And I'm starting to ask myself questions as I read this story. Ahithophel is not a soldier. He's not a warrior. He's a counselor. Now, if you were going to go into a fight and you had one friend that was a boxer and the other one was uh, a scientist researcher type, who would you choose to go into battle with? This isn't complicated. So Ahithophel wants to personally hunt David down, put a spear through his chest. That's Ahithophel's plan. I'm going to do it. Let me go. Hushai's advice was very different. The pronoun he uses over and over again is you. So now Hushai appeals to Absalom's ego. Gather the entire nation. You know how formidable a foe David and his valiant men are. But you gather the nation and you go and we will bring them back. So Absalom chooses Hushai's advice. Why? Appeal to his ego. Whose advice was better? No question. Ahithophel's advice was the right plan. In fact, long story short, condense it down. Hushai sends spies out of the city, priests, to go carry the message to David to tell David what Ahithophel's advice has been. Get out of here and get going. Long story short, those spies get the message to David and David and the people with him take off. And of course, Absalom is gathering this country, gathering the soldiers, gathering the people. And time is going by, buying time for David. By the way, how many times do you think Ahithophel had ever heard the words, not good, in summary of his advice? How many times do you think he'd heard that? One time. Interestingly, he walks away from that session with Absalom where his advice has been declared not good, goes home, settles his affairs, And kills himself. And I'm reading this story and I'm asking myself over and over again, why? Um, Why? Why does Ahithophel... A, why does he trade sides? Why does he betray David? Why does he switch over to Absalom? Why? Why does he have this... um, plan the strategy to personally go out and put a spear through David's chest. What's driving Ahithophel? That's my question. And you, of course, want to know, what is the answer, right? Do you ever ever read the... um, the, all those begats, those genealogies, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And what you do, you're not in your head, you're saying, yes, I read those. And what we do is we buzz through those because how important can those be? Well, if you pay close attention to the genealogies, you discover a fascinating fact. Um, Ahithophel, I told you, had a son named Eliam. One of David's valiant men. Eliam had a wife, and he and his wife together had children. One of his children was a young lady named Bathsheba. So what's the relationship between Ahithophel and Bathsheba? Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. And I go, of course. Any other grandfathers here? Someone ever mistreats your granddaughter? What are you going to do? Who said that? Who said that? Well, they couldn't shoot him back then because they didn't have any guns. That's why fell wanted to use a spear. And so this whole story goes all the way back to chapter 11 when David has this illicit sexual relationship with Bathsheba, follows that by making sure that her husband Uriah is killed in battle, and then David marries Bathsheba, brings her into his... All of this goes back to that beginning point. How many years did Ahithophel carry that bitterness, that anger, that resentment, that grudge? My guess is, just looking at the stuff between chapter 11 and chapter 15, probably 10, 12 plus years You ever carried a grudge that long in your life? Know anybody else who has? You know any bitter old women, bitter old men who have carried grudges for decades? It happens. And so, the consequence of this story is this. There is a potential for anger, resentment, bitterness, failure to forgive to follow any of us, any of us, for decades. The potential's always there. And so there's four things I want you to grab a hold of, and I wish I didn't have to hurry through these, but um, I think there's value in learning the lesson of Ahithophel. There's value in understanding that a failure to forgive, a refusal to forgive, Leads to a life of bitterness, um, pain, um, all kinds of problems. And my observation is that sometimes we have different ways of forgiving without really forgiving people. We have, sometimes we forgive people conditionally. I will forgive you if. If you change. If you confess. If you repent. If, if, if. My forgiveness is conditioned on what you do. And if you don't do it, you're out of luck. We also have a kind of forgiveness. that's not conditional, but it's incomplete. Um, I'll forgive, but... Don't expect me to forget. I'll forgive, but... Don't ever do that again. Conditional forgiveness... um, Incomplete forgiveness and then delayed forgiveness. I'll forgive, just give me time. I need time. We need to learn the importance of forgiveness. Uh, My second thought is this. I must be committed to a ministry and spirit of forgiveness before the offense happens. If you and I wait until someone offends us, hurts us, does whatever, before we contemplate whether or not we're going to forgive, guess what? <laughs> not happening. We need to choose before the event, before an event. We need to choose that I will forgive. I am going to forgive forgive. Um, There's two passages here. Ephesians 4.32. Uh, Some of you like me have memorized this. Be kind, tender-hearted. What? Forgiving each other as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. We got those passages. Um, The Colossians 3 passage says this. Can you read it with me? Can you see it all up there? Part of it's on the edge. So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. How's that for a list? Huh? Put on these things. Wear them. Put them on. Bearing with one another. Literally putting up with each other. That's what we're supposed to do. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Committed to a ministry of forgiveness. My third thought is this. There's value in remembering what God has done in forgiving you and me, right? God has forgiven us uh, in such an amazing way. We just sang about it, in fact. Um, Psalm 103.12 says that as far as the east is from the west, what has God done? Separated our sin from us. He has separated our sin as far as the east is from the West, what I call the place of no return. <laughs> um, Isaiah thirty-eight seventeen says that God has cast my sin behind his back to be remembered against me no more. Place of no remembrance. He has separated my sin from me as far as the East is from the West. He's cast my sin behind his back to be remembered against me no more. Does that, does that mean God has a faulty memory? There's a key word in there, remembered against me. God doesn't forget, but it's not remembered against me. And then a passage I love a lot. Micah 7 says that God has cast our sin, where? Into the depths of the sea. (laughs) The place of no return, the place of no remembrance. And when it goes into the depths of the sea, it's the place of no recovery. (laughs) Every year you see a picture of a barge being towed out into the Pacific with all the weaponry, the LAPD or whoever is accumulated and confiscated, and they take it out there and they shove it off. Why do they do that? Not coming back. Not coming back. God has forgiven us. And He calls you and me to do what? Forgive just as He's forgiven us. And then a fourth thought that follows this for me, it's important for us to remember that we need to be forgiven too, right? Anyone besides me ever messed up? Ever hurt anybody's feelings? Ever offended anybody? Ever blew it big time? You know, um, I've had to be forgiven by people lots of times. And in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, Brothers, if you see someone caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore that one. That word restore is the idea of mending fishing nets, making them functional again, mending broken bones so that a body heals properly. He says, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody did something really awful and horrible and you found yourself thinking or saying, I could never do that? Well, I'll tell you what, as I read this book... (laughs) Right time, right place, right circumstances. You and I are capable of doing anything. But for the grace of God, right? And it's so easy for us at times to see situations where we've been hurt, we've been offended, and we fail to remember how much God's forgiven us and how much we've needed to be forgiven by others. We need to be people who are committed to a ministry of forgiveness. The story of Elizabeth Morris, by the way, doesn't end where I left you hanging. Elizabeth and her husband, Ted, began visiting Tom, the man who killed their son. He actually wound up doing a prison term because he violated parole without her help. And he wound up in prison. Elizabeth and Ted began visiting him on a regular basis. She discovered forgiveness with the help of the Lord. The witness to Tom shared the gospel with him. He came to faith, was baptized, responded to the gospel message. And Elizabeth and Tom actually traveled for a period of time speaking at high school assemblies for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. She found the ability to forgive by the grace of God. And that would be my prayer for for you, uh, my prayer for myself Uh, in this journey of life to learn to forgive. And so here's where I want to wind up this morning with you. Um, Is there someone that you need to forgive? In the midst of all this, did God bring someone to your mind? Someone that's hurt you, something that's caused offense, and you've just kind of nursed that thing along. Is there someone you need to forgive this morning? Uh, Another question might be this, Um, where do you find yourself here? Can you place yourself on that uh, little downward trip? We need to be people who are committed to a ministry of forgiveness. This is very personal for me this morning for lots of reasons. a couple of recent events have caused me to relive and to remember an experience in my life 26 years ago where I experienced betrayal. I experienced um, accusations that were false. I experienced some Pretty extreme consequences in my life. And all these, this, these current events have dredged up again. All these emotions, all these feelings. And it's making me think to myself, so did I really forgive? Did I really forgive? Did I just think I forgave? Um, it's very, very personal for me. I want to be a person committed to a ministry of forgiveness. The other thing that concerns me this morning... And this, too, grows out of my life experience. It's very easy when a church goes through a period of time that our congregation here has gone through for there to be resentments, bitterness, anger. It's very easy when a church puts together a search committee tasked with going out and finding a pastor, It's very easy for people to not understand the process, to even disagree with the process, wish the process was different, and to carry bitterness because it didn't go the way they thought it should have gone. It's very easy for people to have anger toward those on the committee. It's easy for people to be angry because someone else voted differently than they did. Do we see any of that in our culture today? Democrats and Republicans and the whole thing. But it can happen in a church. And then what happens next is this, all this stuff is being carried. And then the new pastor arrives on the scene and he changes things. He does things differently. Well, that's not the way we've done it for the last hundred years. How many years have you guys been here? long time. You know, that's not the way we do things here. And so new pastor comes in. He's got some. He's from Philadelphia. What do those people know, Right. Um, but there's going to be things that are different there's going to be things that change and one of the things I urged on you several weeks ago as you prepare for your new pastor and we were reminded of it again this morning as we prayed for Rick and Brenda the most important thing you can do for them as they come is to pray pray for them Pray for the congregation here to respond well, to receive them well, to respond to their ministry well. And if you're carrying any of this cruddy garbage stuff, give it to the Lord. Sometimes, you know, our prayer might not be, Lord, help me to forgive. The prayer might be, Lord, help me to be willing to be willing to forgive, right? Sometimes we're not all the way there yet. But we need to be people committed to a ministry of forgiveness. And so that's my my appeal to you this morning. Will you commit yourself to a ministry of forgiveness? Personally, individually, and collectively. What a wonderful thing that a church with the name Grace on it would be filled to overflowing with... Grace, and that grace would be demonstrated and proven because of how we relate together, how we live together, and as I've suggested this morning, how we forgive each other. Lord, help us to do that. It's not often easy. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's, a, it's always a challenge, Lord. We confess. It's always a challenge. Help us this morning to learn the lesson of Ahithophel. Make us people committed to a ministry of forgiveness. Thank you for doing that as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing with me. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving me me, my great salvation, so rich and free. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and really high on that list Paul says in Ephesians is we've been forgiven before the foundation of the world chosen in him and as you go out this morning go out in that spirit fresh and ready to forgive will you do that? Have a great week.